the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Uh, we're continuing our uh, discussion about repentance in our Desert Spirituality series. Um, and today we're going to be covering how it is that a repentant person is supposed to view himself um, in the eyes of God. Last time we covered how, how God sees the repentant, uh, but today we'll see kind of the 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 mindset, the mentality that someone has um, when they're going through different stages of repentance and how um, those might be appropriate or not appropriate, but certainly how uh, they're, they're all very relevant to us. And I thought that it would be um, useful for us to start with uh, a story from uh, the Syriac uh, saints. This is uh, the story of St. Mary of Edessa, uh, she's the niece of another saint. His name is St. Abraham of Kadun. And uh, we won't go through the whole story here, but essentially what, what ends up happening is um, she uh, loses both of her parents and St. Abraham, her uncle, who's effectively living as a monk on the outskirts of the, of the city, uh, takes her in so that he can care for her uh, and raise her. Uh, and so they live in different parts of the house. He's basically in the inner part of the house. Um, and she'll come and minister to him through a window. She'll give him uh, food and whatever it is that he needs. And then she's in the outer part of, of the house. Uh, and he teaches her how to fast and pray and, um, and how to live a, a true Christian life. And so he's, at this point, he's, he's rather old. Um, and she is raised by him for 20 years. And after 20 years, there's, uh, and, and during this, this period of 20 years, she is wholeheartedly uh, living a good Christian life. And after 20 years, uh, it says that the devil put her into his mind and decided that he was going to tempt her. And so he had another monk that was, uh, they, the way that the story is recounted is that he's only a monk by name uh, because he comes to visit St. Abraham and he looks through the window one day and he sees her and he sees that she's very beautiful and he lusts after her and decides that he wants to sleep with her. Um, and so he attempts to... Uh, to get into that part of the house for a year. And he's asking her, pleading with her, please let me in. And uh, his intents are, are, are very well known. Um, and after a year, she ends up letting him in and she falls into sin. And when she falls into sin, uh, the response that she has that's written out in her life here, um, I'd say is, is very uh, applicable to how it is that many of us feel after we've sinned and we all sin. And it's the, um, well, we'll examine to see how appropriate her response is. But I would say that uh, if anyone, um, if anyone has lived a life of repentance or has tried to live a life uh, according to the Christian standard, these kinds of thoughts will definitely pervade after we've fallen. And so we'll see just how appropriate those are. 
she starts out by saying, I am now as good as dead. I have lost all the days of my life. My ascetic labors, my abstinence, my tears are all wasted, for I have rebelled against God and slain my soul. And upon my holy uncle, I have imposed bitter grief. I have wrapped myself in shame by becoming a laughingstock to the enemy Satan. Why should I continue to live now that I have become so wretched? Alas, what will happen to me? Alas, what have I done? Alas, how did I fall? How did my mind and senses become so darkened without my realizing it? How my downfall occurred, I was unaware. How I became corrupted, I do not know. A dark cloud overlaid my heart, preventing me from seeing what I was doing. How shall I hide myself? Where shall I go? Into what pit shall I cast myself? What has become of the saintly man's instruction? What has happened to the wise Ephraim's warnings? Ephraim was... Uh, St. Abraham's friend, who is living in Edessa as well, and he is the one that's writing their biography. Um, they told me to be careful of myself and preserve my virginity spotless for the immortal bridegroom. Your bridegroom is holy and jealous, they said. No longer do I dare look up to heaven, for I have died to God and to men. I can no longer go near that window, for how can I, a sinner full of horrid stains, speak with this saintly man? If I made bold to approach the window between us, then fire will issue forth and consume me. It would be better for me to depart to some other place where no one knows me, seeing that I have died once and for all and no longer have any hope of salvation. Now, I, I would venture to say that it's probably, it sounds like it's so um, uh, emotional and uh, sort of over the top in her reaction. Uh, but I, I would challenge anyone who has fallen a real fall, uh, after they've fallen, particularly if they, were, if they were trying to live a Christian life before the fall, before their fall, um, to see whether or not these kinds of thoughts uh, would not pervade their mind. Uh, I, I would say that this is a, a pretty accurate description um, of what happens. But there's elements here um, that are important to see of why it is that this kind of repentance is inappropriate. And I, and I specify, and I start with this kind of an example here, because most of the time when we think of what a repentant person, what their disposition is supposed to be like towards God, I think that we think this kind of disposition, where, um, woe is me, I'm so wretched, I am sinful, I'm a terrible person, how could anyone love me? How could love love me? How can God look at me? Um, and uh, and I, I would say that that kind of thought uh, has a very strong element of pride involved in it. And it's, and it's actually something that she refers to here. And it's something that the Desert Fathers will speak about time and again, uh, which is when she ends up saying, in this third question here. She says, alas, how did I fall? How did I fall? And the reason why the Desert Fathers say that this has so much pride in it is because we, take, we put so much stock in ourselves and our capabilities, what it is that we are able um, to do. And so most of our, uh, our spiritual life sometimes can just be how it is that we are um, sort of pulling ourselves up by the bootstraps and making our spiritual life happen by ourselves. 
And we think that we're doing this with, with God's help. And there might be an element that, that certainly, I mean, God is not abandoning us during this, during this time when we're trying to live according to the, the Christian standards. But um, what we see is that there's a heavy reliance on self here. And so if there's a heavy reliance on self from before, then when we end up falling into the sin, we say, how could I have done this? I'm supposed to be much better than that. For example, I'm a servant at church. How could I do that? Or I'm supposed to be an excellent husband or an excellent wife. Or uh, I was, you know, a great, uh, a great kid. How could I have fallen into this? And this carries all the way up, right? I mean, this could be uh, any rank of the clergy, for example, uh, could think something like this as well. How could I, in whatever position I imagine that I am, um, the one who serves and does all of these things for all these other people, et cetera, et cetera. How could I have fallen into something like this? Um, and for her, she has lived this life for, for 20 years under this instruction of a saint who day by day is instructing her and in, in, in telling her um, the things that I think many of us would, would love to be privy to, just that sort of daily interaction with a saint um, who's, who's really living wholeheartedly for God. Uh, and so she thinks to herself, you know, if, if I had all of that, if I had access to all of that, how could I fall? Um, why would I allow for something like this to happen? Um, now, there, there are elements of, of what it is that she's saying here that are in fact true. So we can't just take this, uh, this monologue that she has and say, all of this is terrible and we shouldn't feel any of these things or any of this is um, inappropriate for, for repentant. There are some things that are very insightful. Um, when she says, for example, how my downfall occurred, I was unaware. How I became corrupted, I do not know. A dark cloud overlaid my heart, preventing me from seeing what I was doing. Um, and again, from my own experience, uh, that seems to be a very strong reality. When, uh, when we're not taking um, Christ, when we're not keeping him in mind in everything that it is that we're doing, sins can creep up on us and fully embed themselves within us. And we don't realize how bad we've become ensnared uh, by sin until something big happens. Uh, and so that's actually a, a very a good thing to realize because it shows us that the life of repentance is really a life of vigilance. It is where someone is uh, fully aware to some degree that at any point they can fall. Uh, they are not, um, there is no one that is uh, uh, not subjected to temptations uh, and that temptations will not come to, I mean, temptations even came to Christ. It's the way that we deal with them and whether or not we're vigilant to be able to see that they're, they're there. Uh, but oftentimes once we let them in, uh, we become unaware of their presence and it just becomes a part of our reality. And we sort of continue along like this until something happens. Um, but that, that line, how did I fall? is very indicative of where it was that she was in her spiritual life. And whereas many of us might think of ourselves that way, um, and certainly she was thinking of herself that way, that's also something that we do inappropriately when we look at others. How could that person have fallen that way? 
this person is, and then fill in the same blanks that we were thinking about before. This person is a great servant. This person is, you know, whatever. Um, how could they fall like that? And it's not to make an excuse and say, well, we should just all accept that people uh, fall and falling is part of it and therefore it's fine. Um, it's what we do with that realization that there is a sin, that someone has fallen. Do we say, uh, when I fall, would the way that I look at myself, should it be, well, how, how could I fall like this? Is that the way that we should be looking towards someone else as well? And that's kind of what we're going to be looking at here um, today. But that's the beginning of her monologue. Now, what she ends up doing is, as a result of this, she uh, escapes. She runs away. And uh, we won't get into the whole story, but her, her uncle, St. Abraham, has, has a vision. Um, but he doesn't really understand what the, the importance of this vision is. Uh, he sees that a snake has devoured a dove uh, and he doesn't see his niece for two days. And so he's wondering why it is that she's not coming to minister to him. And then he goes and he sees that she's, she's gone. She's run away and he has no idea where she's gone. And uh, she ends up staying away for two years until he finally catches wind of where it is that she's gone. Um, she, as a result of this, of feeling like there is no salvation for her, and that she has turned her back on God and on her uncle and on her Christian life, uh, runs away from that and becomes a prostitute. Uh, and she lives that, that prodigal life for two years uh, and does not come to her senses until her uncle goes and, uh, and gets her back. And it's a very beautiful story and, and a, a story that's filled with incredible sacrifice on the part of the uncle to be able to go and get his, his niece back. Um, I would definitely recommend reading this if, if you can get your hands on it. Her name is St. Mary of Edessa, um, and he's St. Abraham of Kudun. Anyway, what ends up happening is that he goes uh, to try to get her back and, and pleads with her. Um, and what it is that he's pleading with her is not that she stops living that sinful life. Of course, that is understood. Uh, but what he's pleading with her to understand is something that's so much more profound. He pleads for her to understand that God can forgive her. And that is what she ends up struggling with in this interaction, this conversation that she has with St. Abraham. Um, is how is it that God could accept me after what it is that I've done and what it is that I'm doing right now? And, and through his, his, um, his tremendous devotion to her, uh, he convinces her of this. And she uh, doesn't just end up accepting this and saying, oh yes, now I understand God can accept me and can forgive me. She says, I trust you based on the fact that you're telling me that God can forgive me. So I'm going to go back and live, um, live a good Christian life. And so they go and she lives the, the rest of her life in very deep repentance. But what I want to highlight here is it's not just some sort of a story where, you know, she's fallen and he goes and he speaks to her and suddenly she has this revelation of how much God loves her. Um, she relies on the experience of her uncle who tells her 
believe that God can forgive you. And it's that disposition that we're supposed to have uh, when we're repenting. The, the repentant person is not someone who just sits uh, in dirt and throws ashes on themselves and says, how terrible am I? Look, I am rejected by God and by man. And how, how is it that I could have lived this way? Um, the repentant, re- repentant person recognizes that they have committed sin. They know that they've done something wrong, but they also trust in the love of God and in his mercy and in his forgiveness. That trust is the key for how it is that one person may turn into living this kind of a prodigal life away from God, away from Christ, away from the church, uh, or realizing who it is that they are, that they are uh, human beings, that they're not God, that they're not perfect, that they're subject to temptation, that they fall and they will fall, uh, but that God loves them and that God will accept them back. It's that disposition that, that makes the difference between uh, the prostitute and the saints. Just that. And, and that's why we'll end up seeing that in the lives of the saints, when they have already achieved what we see as being sort of, you know, tremendous heights that they've reached, they still recognize that they are sinners. And it's not because they are sinners somehow, um, you know, just some sort of theoretical sinners, but they're, they're, not, uh, they're not actually sinning. <clears throat> they sin. Their sin might be, from our standpoint, much smaller because we don't see it. In ter- we, we like to see things in terms of really big sins and small sins. But they, they see that a sin is a sin and that they are sinners, but that they trust in God's love and in his mercy. And so we end up seeing, and I, I just sort of took an extract here <clears throat> from the lament of St. Mary of Edessa. Um, the, the, the whole thing is, is very beautiful to read. It's just a, a couple of pages, two, three pages. Um, but there's, there's a beautiful line in it here where she says, now this is, this is now her lament after she's returned and she's living this life where she is now a true repentant, where she recognizes that she uh, has fallen, where she recognizes that she's a sinner and that she can't do anything without Christ, that her spiritual life is not her trying to impress Christ. It's not her trying to see how far she can get on her own. It is her relying fully on him, knowing that it is only by his grace that she's able to get that kind of strength that he provides the grace. And from that grace, she is uh, using that to, to live an appropriate life uh, of repentance. And so what she says is merciful are you Lord, kind and pitying all have pity on me. The last lamb who has returned heal all its ulcerous wounds and may it find joy in you. May your mercies reach to me, Lord, and that salvation which you spoke of aid me so that I may conquer and destroy the enemy and give thanks to your name, for you have had mercy on me. Now, there's a big difference here in, in what's being stated. And one of the biggest differences that we can see here is that no longer is she just speaking about herself. In the first monologue that she had, when we see how it is that I would say most people that that think that they are living 
uh, a life of repentance or have a disposition of repentance. What she was focusing on so much in the beginning on was herself. And so she says, me, how could I do this? How could this happen to me? What have I done? And in this part, what she's focusing on is on him. And she sees that the mercy is from him. She recognizes that she's a sinner. She sees that she is a lamb that has ulcerous wounds, that her soul needs healing. But she knows that she will find her joy in him, that he has something that he can provide to her. And when, when they were having this, this conversation, um, when, when they were still in the brothel and St. Abraham went, went to go get her back, he says something that's very true and very real that we all know, but that we all forget. We all know this in theory when we're not sinning. We forget this after we've sinned, and we forget this when we see other people that have sinned. This line, he says, who is without sin apart from God alone? And that's so important because when we see ourselves after we've sinned and we think, look, look at the, look at the, the, you know, the heights from that, that I've fallen from and the depths to which I've fallen to, how could I have done this? He tells her in the middle of her being in an environment of sin, who is without sin apart from God alone? I am not here to judge you. I'm here to call you back to a life of true repentance. You think this is repentance where you're sitting there and, you're, and, and you, you can't accept the way that you've become? God just wants you to come back. That's all it is that he wants. And so she, he wants her to see herself like that. But he, what's important too is that he also sees her that way, right? And that's something that we often forget in the way that we're dealing with other people. That, that have sinned. Um, we forget that, uh, that we're to have this kind of a disposition too. Uh, and so we, we now turn to this same uh, thought that we see that has been uh, expressed there in the Paradise of the Fathers. There's a beautiful story from the second volume of the Paradise of the Fathers. Um, and we'll read it here. It says, A brother asked one of the old men and said, If a monk stumbles and falls into sin, are many labors necessary for him? And if he does them, will he be able to stand in the grade where he was formerly? So here's a monk that was at a particular height, and he's fallen. Is it possible to get back to where it was that, that this monk was before? Then the old man answered and said to him, A monk, and he means you're a fallen monk, and, and everyone is, is a sinner, so all of them are sinners. And, and you can replace monk with a human being. A monk is like a house which has fallen down. If he is awake in his mind and if he's zealous and anxious to build that which was fallen down, and this part is critical here, he will find ample material which will be of use in his building among the remains of that which fell down before he begins to build. For he will find the foundation stones and the old stones from the walls and other things which were employed in the old building. And out of these, if he is so disposed, he will be able to make his building to rear itself up better than the man who has not yet dug the places for the foundations and laid the foundation stones. So just to take this part here before we, we move on to the second part, he's saying if, if, if a monk was a, an edifice, was a building that had been built up and it was sort of a, an amazing building that was there and has fallen due to sin, 
when the monk looks around and he sees, well, what has become of the building? He still has all of the elements, all of the tools there. They're in ruins, but they're all there. The wood is there, the stones are there, the foundation has already been laid. And so it's not, and this is such a beautiful word of encouragement. It is not as though this person has now fallen to zero or has gone negative, right? In, in, in so saying, in, in what it is that he's saying here, that uh, it's better that this person was at the state that they were before because when they fall, they've already laid the foundation. This is better than someone that hasn't even laid the foundation. That's just sort of at zero because they already have these tools um, to be able to, to go back and build this edifice again. And he continues, and who does not possess the materials which are to be employed in the building and who only, and who only begins to build with the hope that he will be able to finish, that he's still referring to the person that hasn't laid a foundation. Thus is it with him that falls from the practice of rules and works of the monastic life into temptation. For if he turn back and repents, he will possess ample material from his former works of the ascetic life, which he possesses to begin his building afresh. I mean to say the training and the service of the work of the hands, which is the foundation of this. Whoever then has gone from the world and begins the cultivation of ascetic excellence, when he has done these things, he will still be found standing in the front rank of the solitary life. This is so encouraging, right? Because it shows that the person who, who invests their time and their effort and tries to live a life according to Christ, when they've fallen, they don't see that they've ruined everything. Not everything is lost, right? Is it in, in ruins? Is it in shambles? Yes, but the materials are still there and they can build it back up. And because they've built it before, they can build it again. And they can go back, not just to a good place. They can, they can still be found standing in the front rank of the solitary life. And this is something that, again, is so important for us because when we've sinned, and we think to ourselves, well, how is it that I can look at myself again in the mirror? How is it that I can accept myself? How is it that God can accept me? This disposition, again, is the disposition that saints have. They say, yes, I've fallen, but I can build again. And this is what the, the life of repentance is, which is their whole life, right? Is constant, some, something that has been destroyed and rebuilt. Destroyed, rebuilt, rebuilt, rebuilt. Um, and it's, it's that understanding that allows them to be able to see themselves as sinners without uh, losing all of their senses as a result of this realization, right? That they say, yes, I am a sinner. I am a sinner, right? I am made from the dust of the earth. I'm not perfect. I'm not God. I'm not Jesus Christ. I'm a human being. And as long as I'm here, I will not be perfect, but I can strive towards perfection. And what that means is, is that there are times where I will fall. And if I'm not vigilant, I can fall big. But I know that God will still accept me. Because all I have to do is just turn back and, and make that sort of proclamation, that realization. I'm a sinner. I understand your mercy. There's another desert father here of Asarmatos. This is again from the Paradise of the Fathers. And he says, I prefer a sinful man who knows he has sinned and repents 
to a man who has not sinned and considers himself to be righteous. This is actually very much in line with what it is that Christ said when he says, I didn't come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance, right? Why is this the case? It's because the disposition of one that has sinned and repented is that he knows not to trust in himself. He is not his own savior. God is his savior. It's not by one's strength that this is accomplished, but it's God who gives the strength. Someone that hasn't fallen yet, and there are many among us that are like this, right? That they haven't fallen in sort of a big way. Of course, all of us sin, but sometimes it takes sort of a big one to be able to, to, to shake us, to, to realize this. And it's, that, it's sort of that big shake that happens that allows someone the opportunity to be able to see that they are sinners and that they can't do it without Christ. But for those that haven't experienced something like that, it's very simple and easy for them to be able to see themselves as righteous. And, and, and as a result, two things end up happening. One, their life of repentance is not, I don't want to say not as sincere, um, but it's not as developed. It's not as developed as the other uh, because they don't often see the depth to which their sin extends. But the other thing that comes of that is because they haven't yet had to face their own sinfulness in, in the gravity that it can be, is that when they see other people they're also very quick to judge. They're quick to judge because they say, look, I haven't fallen, right? I, I'm exposed to the same sort of environment as you. I have the same temptations around me as you do, and I haven't fallen. Whereas the sinner, the sinner knows something. The sinner knows if I could fall, if I could fall, when I eject the grace of God from my life. And it can happen without my even really being aware of it because I wasn't very vigilant. Then it can happen to anybody. And that is a, that is a real uh, fundamental realization that needs to be made in each person's life. And so we come to the great saint of Macarius. And again, this is from his fourth homily. We made reference to this uh, in the last talk. Um, I would really, really recommend that people go read his homilies. Um, and the fourth one in particular is just, just tremendous. Um, he says, and so even now, God is good and kind. He shows himself long-suffering toward each one of us. He sees how much each of us offends him. And yet he tranquilly waits until man is converted from sin. And then he's filled with, with great love and joy. If anyone receiving such immense goodness and gentleness of God shown him would not accept the remission of his every offense, hidden or manifest, while God regards him without a word as he holds out to him repentance, such a person, I say, would be abusing God's kindness by remaining hardened in his sins. In fact, he would add sin to sin. Now, there's a part of this that's so important about the disposition of a person who is living a life of repentance. Note here that it's not saying that God 
is waiting to offer this. He is constantly offering this, right? He says, while God regards him without a word, as he holds out to him repentance. God is holding out repentance to him. The line that's right before it is that, that the issue here. It's not that God doesn't want to offer repentance. It says, if anyone receiving such immense goodness and gentleness of God shown him would not accept the remission of his every offense, hidden or manifest, if you can't accept the fact that God can forgive you, this is what he says, is an abuse of God's kindness because you don't understand how loving and merciful God is. That's on you. That's not on him. He's, he's not angered as a result of that. And he doesn't say, well, how dare you not see me as being such a, a loving, merciful person, right? He says, I'm here. I'm constantly here offering this out. But you yourself, you're hardening yourself because you don't realize that. You can't forgive yourself. You can't see that I can forgive this. There is no sin that is too big for me to be able to forgive. And so he says, in fact, he would add sin to sin. So here's this person that has fallen and now can't accept the reality that God can forgive them. And if you remember, this was, in fact, the very issue that St. Mary of Edessa had before she had uh, repented in the, in, the, in the more full way, before St. Abraham went to her after a couple of years, after she had just fallen. This was what it was that she was struggling with. How can God forgive me? This sin is too big for God to forgive. If anyone receiving such immense goodness and gentleness of God shown him would not accept the remission of his every offense. Dwell on that and think about that. And so we see here that Christ desires to forgive us under the least pretext. This is a, a beautiful line from St. Isaac the Syrian. And he says, see how weak our nature is. Even though our good works are few, we take on the fame of righteousness. We think that we're so great because we've just done a few little things here and there. But with the least pretext, the merciful Lord calls us righteous. You just do something small and he will say, look at this righteous person. Now, is there one who doubts these things which I said, or indeed one whose conscience does not witness to these glory, glorious realities of God? Let the remembrance of the thief at the right of Jesus be a blessing, as it is known that also he is among the recipients of mercy freely given. The mercy is freely given. Now, what's amazing here is, and this, this particular homily that he has, which is in the third part of his spiritual homilies, um, which was recently translated. <clears throat> what St. Isaac says is, is that God is looking for an excuse to forgive you. God is looking for whatever small thing, just give him a little bit. And he says, I forgive you. And we spoke about this a little bit last time. But it's, again, it's that, disposi that disposition on the part of the sinner to know that about God that allows for them to more confidently return as the prodigal son did.
which we see in this icon here. Even though we do very small things, we think that we're so wonderful. And that's our pride. But when we even do those small things, he sees us as wonderful. That's amazing. Most of us are not going to change the world. Most of us are, are not going to do things that are going to be remembered in textbooks and these sorts of things. Most of us, unfortunately, are probably not going to make it into the synaxarium. And not because we won't be saints, but because of uh, how amazing those saints are that, that are in the synaxarium. Uh, God willing, we, we will all strive to be that. <clears throat> but what's amazing is, is that he, the way that God views us, is with so much joy because we just do very little things. What's so important about, what's so earth-shattering about any of the little services that we do? But to him, they're everything. And so we will conclude here with a prayer by St. Isaac the Syrian, who says, Your goodness, my Lord, which you pour out on everything, May it not be for me a pretext for evil, that because of your sweetness I might do evil. Hold me with the reins of your mercy, that I might be able to stand up against the stirrings which assail me, and against the accidents which happen to me. Send me your holy guardian angel, and heal the infirmity of my thoughts. For being mortal, I am filled with infirmity. Keep my steps from the snares the enemy has hidden for me, to lead to the way of wickedness of a sinner. Don't let the reason that I sin be that I know that you're merciful. I know that God is very loving. I know that he's merciful. I know that he'll accept me back. Don't let that be a pretext for me to be able to say, that means that I can go and sin. Beware of that. That is a, a trick that, that the devil loves to use on us, right? And sort of the colloquial way that we tell our, our youth about that is, you know, now that you know about repentance and confession, don't think to yourself before you commit a sin, oh, well, I'll just commit the sin and then I can go and confess, right? Uh, that is what we say sort of offhandedly like that to our youth is such a reality and is such a temptation. The more that someone grows in the love of Christ and they see how merciful he is, it becomes that much more tempting to be able to capitalize on that. And that's important to realize in terms of how it is that we view ourselves. Are we beloved by Christ? Yes. Does he love us? Or, and, and we've committed all of these sins? Yes. Regardless, right? Regardless. But that doesn't mean that that's good for me. He is love. But what's good for me? What's good for that relationship between between he and I. And so you see how much St. Isaac the Syrian here relies on the mercy of Christ, but also on his grace. So that he says, hold me with the reins of your mercy. Hold me. That I might be able to stand up against the stirrings which assail me and against the accidents which happen to me. Not, look, now I'm St. Isaac the Syrian. Now I can do all of this stuff. Look, the fantastic homilies that I've written. I've written so many homilies before this homily. So I've, you know, I've arrived. 
he realizes that he still needs Christ every step of the way. This is the disposition of one who is a repentant. And this is the life that we are constantly supposed to be seeking out after. And this is why we turn to the Desert Fathers, because this is what they uh, brought about within their own lives. And this is, these are the kinds of realizations that they made so that they can tell us when they've fallen from 100 feet up in the air, how they can tell us who have fallen from one inch off the ground. And they say, don't despair. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. You fall. I have fallen. But understand the depth of God's love and understand the disposition that you are to have. That you don't just sit there and, and agonize over your sinfulness and forget how loving and merciful he is and forget the salvation that he's offered to us all. God help us all. Pray for the church. And glory be to God forever. Amen.